What if I told you that being in the right place at the right time was not a circumstance of luck? What if I told you it's a skill that you could learn and leverage to achieve your goals and dreams? This is the Right Place Right Now podcast with Travis Fields and Brandon Johnson. What's up, everybody? Today, we are talking about mindset. Mindset is the lens through which you perceive the world. As the saying goes, when you change the way that you look at things, the things you look at change. If you think about that, it can be liberating because it gives you control. If you don't like a situation or circumstance, a simple mindset shift can completely transform the way your life unfolds before you. But how do we change our thoughts when they seem to happen automatically and be beyond our control? David Taylor Klaus is a mindset expert and coach helping leaders change the way that they view success. His mission? To reintroduce successful business people to their families and the world outside the office. He does this by helping them get their mind right. Prior to establishing DTK Coaching, David was the CEO of an internet strategy and web development firm that he co-founded in 1995. As a strategist, he worked with C-level executives, senior management teams, and boards of directors to broaden their perspective and develop initiatives for business growth. It was during this time that David realized his success came from being reactive rather than proactive. He wasn't participating consciously as a husband, father, business partner, or entrepreneur. And as David headed toward rock bottom, he had a significant wake-up call that ultimately resulted in DTK coaching. During this interview, David addresses the significance of the stories that we tell ourselves and how those stories impact our actions and ultimately our results. He says, the lens through which we see the world colors and changes the way that we experience the things around us. So how do we change our mindset to get the results that we want? Let's find out with our good friend, David Taylor Kloss. DTK, DTK, DTK. David Taylor Klaus, how are you this morning, sir? Awesome. Actually, it's a, it's a fabulous Friday. It is. Yeah, we've been, uh, I've been excited to have you on and uh, we're going to talk a lot about mindset today and what we do uh, with our mindset and how we can be in control of that. So you've uh, done quite a bit of work around mindset. Uh, specifically, I have a book in front of me called Mindset Mondays, and that is your book. Uh, can you tell us kind of how that came about? Um, yeah, completely accidentally. I, I It did not start off wanting to write a book. In fact, I actively did not want to write a book. And it's my marketing person. It's actually her fault. Back in 2017, I came to her and I said, I want to get better at speaking to any topic through the lens of my point of view, live and off the cuff. And she said, okay, Facebook is prioritizing live video. Why don't you just grab, you know, you guys remember all my business cards have different quotes on the back, right? And for the, you know, listening to the podcast, you can't see, but I'm holding them up. And she said, grab one of your business cards, use that quote and just wax poetic about leadership for 10 minutes. And I was like, okay. So what I didn't hear, <laughs> because I was throwing up after she said, do live video. I was like, oh, oh I don't want to do that. Um, she had said, oh, and that could turn into courses and programs and a book and a blah, 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 blah. She had all this whole marketing plan that she came up with off the top of her head. I'm like, I don't want to do live video. And so we wrote up this whole marketing plan and I put it on the shelf. 
And I was sitting in a coaching training. I was helping deliver the training. And one of the new coaches was doing a practice session and I was talking about wanting more visibility. And I said, you know, it clicked. I said, I've got this whole marketing plan sitting on my shelf that I don't want to do. And it's exactly the solution to this. And she said, I'll hold on. What do you mean you'll hold on? She said, text Jody now and give her a launch date. So that next week, I started Mindset Mondays, that weekly live broadcast, and it ran for four years. And what I realized during the course of it, yes, I got better at speaking to any topic through the lens of my point of view. What came out clearly very quickly is everything about leadership has to do with mindset. It, it changes the way we lead, it changes the way we learn, it changes the way we grow, it changes everything. And I started to see that reflected back in what was coming from the audience that was coming to these live broadcasts. And the, the Facebook community that arose with those people. And I learned a tremendous amount about how mindset permeate, permeates our world. And it started to become clear that my first year of these broadcasts had sort of become a how-to for rewiring your brain and for changing and shifting and maintaining mindset. And it was what I needed 30 years ago when I started as an entrepreneur. And I had a coach who said, you know, you should write the book that you needed to read. I'm like, I think I just did. And I went back and took the first 52 episodes and converted them to chapters and had my eldest child and, their, and my daughter-in-law create all the art for it and a designer put the book together, it literally wrote itself over the course of the year. And, and at that point, it was pulling together, pulling it together in a story arc, which there actually is one, and then pulling in the comments from other people in the community. And it, it, it literally was the most effortless book creation that I've ever been part of or witnessed. And then, we, then Jody and I created this, um, I mean, Laurie and I created this rewire framework, which is that six-step process to take any of the learning from each chapter and make it real in the reader's world. Because most of the books on our shelves are, are shelfware. You know, if we read them, the stats are horrible about how many we actually read, but if we read them, they often just sit there and we've forgotten it after we've read it, right? So I wanted this to be a book that people use and got something out of. So the rewire framework enables people to take what they've learned in any of the given chapters and go use it in the world and apply it in different areas and experiment with it so that they can make that learning stick. There's nothing worse than, oh my God, that was brilliant. And then don't do anything with it and you lose it. Yeah, that was one of my favorite parts about the book is every, I mean, there are two or three page chapters and there's something at the end of it that you can actually use and apply and and think about for the week and i i think that's where the the mindset switch comes in when you're using this book it requires you to do exactly what you just said is is to like we read it and then we put it down and forget about it but this book and the way that you've formatted it it requires you to then change your mindset about books and use it and do things uh based on the text i love that about it I'm glad that landed for you. There's a, I have a friend who wrote the book and the chapters were like 40, 45 pages each. And it was a slog to get through some of them. And 
I realized that we have a very time poor and attention poor society right now. And this was written just before COVID locked everybody in and made us even more time poor and attention poor. And there's a sense of accomplishment that people get by moving through a book. And there's, there's a dopamine hit like, you know, from completing a chapter and making something that's readily digestible and immediately actionable gives people that sense of accomplishment as they go through it. Started to notice more and more authors are creating, you know, visual breaks, if not full chapter breaks, keeping it rapid motion through a book. And it's amazing. You can watch on, on Kindle Lending Library that you can see how people chunk through a book and how much they read of it. And it's been wild to watch how people actually chunk through the book throughout the year. Very cool. I'm glad that that landed for you, Travis. Yeah, it was good. What was there a moment that kind of made you latch on to this idea of mindset and really want to start studying it? Yeah, I mean, how how dark do you want to go? <laughs> well, I guess that's up to you. Uh, it's such a such an important thing uh, for us to think about, but I think a lot of people don't give it enough credit, and certainly a lot of people there there aren't enough people really diving into it and breaking it down like you have. So, what was the catalyst for you? I, I did it out of necessity. Um, I think. You know, entrepreneurs have a tendency to just plow through things and actively try not to think about things <laughs> and not feel. I know I did that for a very long time. I think I was at 10 years into the technology company that I co-founded and led. And I was leading the company that I thought I should lead and leading the way I thought I should lead. and attracting the kind of clients that I thought we should attract and do the kind of projects I thought we should do. And man, that was a shitty way to live. It was, it, everything looked fabulous. Three kids in private school, been married for 20 years at that point. I mean, everything was fabulous. And I was dying on the inside. I, I was so off center. I was so should forward and, and nothing on the inside. Um, I got to a point where every time I turned the doorknob to my office, my stomach turned. And it, it came to a head August 29th, 2005. And I, the only thing I was clear about at that point were the five best ways to kill myself. I was, I was done. But thankfully, I had learned that children of parents who commit suicide are 50 times more likely to attempt suicide in their lifetime. And that's, that's not the legacy that I wanted to leave for my kids. That's, that's not who I wanted to be for them. So something had to change. So uh, I, I was very clear. I wasn't staying for me. I didn't have anything that I wanted to stay for. I stayed for them. And that got me, that got me doing the work and looking at the stories that I was making true and the, the lens, lenses through which I saw the world mindset. That's the lens through which we see the world. And I started reevaluating those lenses. That was a lot of therapy and a lot of coaching. And I realized that so many of us wait until we hit that inflection point where we hit bottom. We wait until that inflection point to choose to see things differently, to even choose to look at how we see things. 
But here's the thing, one of the, the quote in the, in the beginning of the book, we do not see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And that gives us amazing amounts of power because the lens through which we see the world colors and changes all the experiences that we have and all the information we collect and the way we move in this world. So when we change our lens, we change the way we experience things. We change your lens, you change your life. And we are the, on the only thing we can control is our mindset, the lens through which we see the world. So it was time to learn how to do that. And no, there's no switch flip that makes it happen. It's your brain is wired for sameness. It wants to do the same thing over and over and over again. It's a pattern repeater, right? And so in order to create new patterns, new th thought patterns, new behavior patterns, you have to take small actions repeated with high cadence over a duration of time. So small actions repeated frequently during the day for four to six weeks. Some research says you can create new habits in three weeks. Go for four to six. It's the only thing that has proven over and over again the best way to create a new thought pattern or a new habit. You replace habits or thoughts or beliefs that don't serve with habits and thoughts and beliefs that do serve. We don't stop things very well. You don't take people off heroin, you switch them to methadone. We've done We've done replacement therapy for decades. And you do the same thing when you want to change mindsets and change beliefs is articulate what it is you want the replacement thought or belief to be and move into that by repeatedly consciously holding on to it and seeing what happens when you do. It's like, try on the pair of lenses and see how it works for you and keep playing with it. You said there wasn't a switch. But from my perspective, and a lot of people in my generation talk to my friends that I've grown up with, and even just now in my professional career, people my age, they, they come from a background where their parents worked jobs because they were obligated to stay in those jobs for long times because of their responsibilities, right? And the conversation was in the household, mom and dad hate their life, but they're doing it for us. And that sends a message clearly, right? Why do you think... One, you went, you, you got to a breaking point that forced you out of that, but what is it about people where they can't, unless they hit that breaking point, pull themselves out of that to see those different lenses. Those stories that we inherit from our families and from society and from culture are poisonous, right? That whole idea of your life is going to suck, but you do it for your kids. Ooh, it, that's a whole bunch of terrible message you give your kids as it's my fault. Your life sucks because you're choosing a sucky existence or a sucky mindset on it to make my life better. Ooh, wow. And we wonder why we have so many narcissists. <laughs> Whole world's for me, my parents are suffering for me. I mean, it's really, it's a, it's, it's a devastating thing to do is to teach people that their life has to suck, right? There are also a lot of people that stay in the same job for 30, 40 years, they don't love it, they don't care about it. They do it because it allows them to have the other things in their life that they want. The, the problem is when you let, I mean, if you've got a job that you don't like, do you let it permeate the rest of your world or does it stay in that container? And once you let it permeate, man, it stains everything. But then, but here's the other problem because you're, you're speaking to the old gold watch culture where you get a job, you stay in it till you retire, they give you a gold watch and then you go sit by a lake with a stick and a string. 
but that's not what our world is anymore. Like my youngest graduated high school in 2018 and his class are predicted to have seven different careers, not seven different jobs, seven different careers in their lifetime, and four of them do not yet exist. So there's not a gold watch in their future unless they go buy one, because they're not going to be with a company that's going to say, you've been here for 25 years, we love you. It doesn't work like that anymore. And, and when we send kids off into college or, or out of college and say, now decide what you want to do for the rest of your life, that's dumb because that's setting an unrealistic expectation. It's what do you want to do next? That is a mindset that can get a kid to have a completely different experience in college and in the working world, or even not college. It's what do you want to do next, right? What's that going to look like? What if we ask our kids that instead of, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah, that's an important distinction. (laughs) Yeah, we screw up our kids in the weirdest ways. Yeah. That's why I don't have kids. I'm terrified of, I would drive myself crazy with overthinking everything because of that conversation you just had right there. <laughs> I have a friend of ours who was an LMFT and, and he said once, I think our, our oldest, our, our oldest at the time was only two. And he said, stop worrying about f-ing up your kids. You're going to I'm like, what? He goes, no, no, no. Good parenting is damage control. The stuff that the kids are talking about in therapy in their twenties and thirties, you don't even remember. And the stuff you think screwed them up, they don't remember or remember completely differently. So we can obsess and perseverate all we like. Do the best you can with what you know at the time and endeavor to do better. So you talked about creating habits. If somebody's in that place where they're starting to recognize that their career is the easiest example, right? But I feel like this transpires just career. It goes into other things, like you said, your relationship, or maybe even just the environment with your friends. And we're starting to realize that it doesn't fit. Whatever that is, it's typically some sort of feeling. What are some of those first things we need to explore with our own mindset to set that foundation so that we can move through it and on to the next thing? Well, no, it's a great question. And I think the, the, the answer is always for the first thing to do is get curious, right? Because we all make crap up. And when we think it through and play it out and even say it out loud or journal it, we tend to get a better understanding of what it is that we actually don't like or do like or don't want or do want. When it's a feeling, it's hard to take action on it. And so, you know, a feeling that's unexpressed just permeates and becomes an energetic drain. So what is it about, let's say if it's your career, what is it about your job that you hate? What is it about it you like? <laughs> and what are the, what are the, this is, this is step two is the unwritten rules. <laughs> what are the stories you're making up that are making that true, right? So is it not clear communication or, first of all, most people that hate their job hate it because there's a, there's a screaming lack of clarity in what's expected of them and what they're compensated for. And there's often a gap there as well. So the more clarity in your role and the more clarity in your responsibilities, that's the vertical part. And then in the accountabilities and dependencies, upon whom are you dependent in order to be a success and to whom are you accountable so that they can be more successful. So understanding where your role is within an organization and how you play and work with the other people. When you get clarity around that, I found more and more people who hate their job are completely disengaged. When that clarity is there, oftentimes they find much more satisfaction and much more enjoyment. It's that lack of clarity that screws people up a lot. 
and by the way, it's not usually their fault. It's the organization. Do you find that same thing to be true in instances that are career-based, like relationship-based? Is there a lack of clarity in a lot of relationships that make them uh, the same? Always. Oh, my God. You know, there's the running joke that, and is it really a joke or a sad truth? Well, you tell me <laughs> that, that um, women marry men hoping they will change and men marry women hoping they won't. And, you know, that's been a cliche for a long time for a reason. And I think it, it's, it's illustrative of the fact that people don't talk about the relationship. They're just in it. And then they bitch about what's not working and it's not working because you can't get mad at somebody for doing what you haven't told them not to do or for not doing something you haven't told them to do, right? So if you're not talking about it and then you're pissed because you're not getting what you want out of it, yeah, relationships are fraught with lack of clarity. In coaching, one of the first things you do in any coaching relationship is in, in, from the training that I've gotten, we call it design alliance, where you are designing the container for the relationship. Here's you know, confidentiality, um, disclosure, open kimono, whatever the elements are of you design what the relationship's gonna look like and what the rules of engagement are. And, and it's not a one and done. As things change in the coaching relationship, so does the design for that relationship. And we see it happen with things like, in the business world, things like a project charter. Right, that will be redesigned as the project grows and evolves and shifts. Right, just because the charter was written at the beginning doesn't mean the project has gone in a straight line. Things change, and oftentimes the charter and the team constitution have to change accordingly. If we designed it once and expected it to be the same all the way through, then we'd be putting bolts in a chassis at, at a Toyota conveyor belt. That's not the way humans work. So, why do we not do the same thing with relationships? where as things change in the relationship, having kids, changing careers, making more money, making more or less, but making less money, bodies getting older, whatever it is, things change, but the contract of the relationship doesn't change. So same thing, it's what, what is left unsaid is what poisons the field, not what's said. You also just connected that for me because in the beginning of this, you talked about how humans we avoid change. We want consistency and things to be the same, but life isn't right. So we try to carry these same belief systems, same approaches to our life into these changing seasons of our projects, of our relationships. And that I would like your perspective on this. I assume that causes a whole mess of problems in itself, trying to carry who I was into who I'm going to be. Yeah. You can't write the next chapter while you're rereading the last one. And we do that a lot. Like I, I can't, I can no more change what I had for lunch yesterday than any of the decisions I've made up until now, right? Because it's all in the past. You know, overthinking is time traveling because you're not thinking about the present. <laughs> you're th overthinking is almost always perseverating over the past or obsessing over the future, which keeps us out of being present. That's what gets us tangled up. We cannot change the past, nor can we control the future but we allow our brains to get stuck there. Doesn't serve and takes us out of being present. So yeah, I, I think that the fact that our brain is wired for consistency was a necessary behavior pattern. It was a necessary outcome of our previous incarnations. I mean, when we first came out of the trees 
X million years ago. It was important that we had behaviors that could be repeated because that allowed us to find food and find out how to find food and repeat those behaviors. We don't live in a constant threat state anymore. We are the successful outcome of 3 million years of anxiety. All of the individuals that were anxious and didn't want to be away from other people because if they're away from other people, they would die and they didn't want to risk because if they risked, they would die. All of those people survived. All the ones who were not anxious died. They got eaten or banished from the tribe. And so 3 million years of, of a lineage of anxiety, but we're not animals. We're not just animals. <laughs> we have the ability to change the way we think and to be aware of what we think about and change it. Well, that's what makes it so hard, right? Was, is human nature. Like we, we are, our genetics are, are bred to make us be the people we were millions of years ago. And now we don't have to anymore. How do we combat that? I mean, it's, it's human nature. How do you combat that? Well, it's animal nature. It's not human nature. The, the nature of being human is metacognition, that we are able to think about what we're thinking about. We're able to reflect on that and actively change it. Animals, for the most part, don't have that same level of sentience. So yeah, human nature is much more flexible and elastic and neuroplastic than, than animal behavior. When we lean into our animal behavior, that's where the, the epigenetic downline of fear-based living stains us. There is not a saber-toothed tiger around every corner, and yet we walk through the halls of work waiting for the next traumatic event as if there was going to be a tiger there. Wow, living in a cortisol surge all damn day, right? So, so hold on. This is another sick twist of, of evolution. When oxytocin is secreted, you know, the happy hormone, when makes you feel good, it has a residual effect of about 30 to 45 seconds. When cortisol, the stress hormone, is, surges into the body at the sign of a threat perceived or real, you got 24 to 36 hours of residual effect of that. Once you started running away from the saber-toothed tiger, you didn't want to go 30 seconds ago. Yeah, I feel better now. It was hell no, keep running, right? So we learn to have a sustained stress response, but we only get the happy response for a teeny bit of time. Sucks. You gotta, it, it's a harder cycle to break. So living in that constant stress, perceived or real, is what is actually worse than smoking. It's devastating the body. So yes, creating our next story, giving ourselves permission to dream and create and envision what's next gives us the ability to create something next, right? Everything gets created twice, once in here in your head and once out in the world. You have a much better chance of creating something that you want if you envision it first. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard that before. So how do, you, how do you coach people to approach failure? And I, I know that's a really really broad question, but typically, typically one failure will shut down a project in somebody's mind, or even as, as a result, how do you deal with, or, or teach people how to deal with results of failure and not giving up, keep going and pushing through that? Well, the, fir the first step is decoupling, right? That we tend to take failure, every failure, any failure personally, because we haven't decoupled, we haven't separated ourselves from the effort 
the project, the business, the marriage, right? It's, it's whether this project succeeds or not, I'm still a human being, I'm still successful. Because that failed, I am not a failure. And we tend to conflate those two things and that's why it every failure becomes crippling. And it's when you have leaders that still have not done that work, then they start looking at, wow, that project failed, so all the people on the team are failures. No, the project failed, let's understand why. You can tell whether an organization who says we're driven by innovation really are or really aren't by looking at how they treat failure. An organization that wants innovation and creativity be part of their very DNA, you can tell if they are if they celebrate failure more than they celebrate success. Because failure is where you learn. Success, you don't learn as much. If more groups out in Palo Alto are looking at funding startup companies now, where the lead only when the leadership team has had at least one failure. You keep funding unicorns. First of all, they're rare, but you keep you fund teams that haven't had deep experience with failure. They are risk averse and paranoid, or they're completely irrational driving forward. And at one point, something's going to blow up. A company that's experienced failure has, they've already gotten that stain off it. Much less fear. Yeah. How do we translate that into a personal life? Because we have personal failures all the time that are separate from our work and from our corporation and our peers at that work that we hold on to and they dictate how we move forward. Well, we allow them to dictate how we move forward. They don't dictate anything. That's the trick separating, right? I have many cringeworthy moments in my past. I don't even like thinking about them, forget talking about them. But every single decision that was made up until now has led to who I'm being and who I am and how I'm able to serve, whether because of or instead of what I've experienced up until now. As long as we shame our failure and try to hide it, it's going to get in the way of what, what comes next. You have to look at it. You have to celebrate it. You have to learn from it. The only failure is not learning from your failures. That's a, that's a huge mindset shift for a lot of people. So how would you start, how would you tell someone to start actively doing that? Yeah, we play with, you know, let's talk through a failure that's recent. First question is always, did you die? No. Did anybody else die? No. Right now let's play with it. What, what are the actual repercussions? What do you know? What do you feel? What are you making up? What are all the stories around it? What did you learn from it? And unpacking them. And the more of those we get to play with, the more people begin to realize it's not nearly as bad as I'm making up in my head. It's not as dire. I'm not a failure because that failed. I mean, even, you know, folks who have gone through divorce, holy crap, separating that, you know, you are not a failure because that marriage didn't last. Look at what happened. Own your piece of it. Look at what you want to learn from it and how you want to be different in relationships going forward. And if you're co-parenting with your ex, how you want to co-parent, how you want to be in relationship now, what you want to model for your children. You look for learning in any failure. And I'm doing air quotes for a reason. Because yeah, if, if something didn't turn out the way you wanted, learn from it, <laughs> grow from it. And it's not a failure. It's just another opportunity for learning. We frame it as failure and failure has a stain. Nothing inherently wrong with failure. 
then it perpetuates that cortisol high too, right? You, you took that yeah. 24 to 30 hours and now you've turned it into 30 Lifetime. days. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, it, it's, and again, back, you know, how do we do this? We do lots of small steps. And it's amazing how the lots of small steps lead to the most massive change. Not everything has to be a 180 degree turn, right? Sometimes it's just notching something one degree at a time. And over distance, that becomes quite a massive change. Dream bigger than you've ever dreamed before. It's one of the things that my coach says and has been writing about for years. You know, the goal is to dream bigger than you've ever dreamed before and take the smallest step possible to get there. And the smallest step possible is, is the most important piece because people like, I want, I have this, you know, fantastic 50 year mission. What do I do first? That's huge. Okay. It's huge, but it's also 25 years away, right? 90 days is 1% of that. What do you do over the next 90 days? What's one small act to move that forward over the next 30 days? We, we, we overcomplicate things. We have a heartaholic society. It's like the, some perverse idea that the, the fiercer the dragon, the sweeter the victory. It, it doesn't, we don't have to make things hard to make it good. <laughs> what will it look like when it's easy? What if we ask that question more? I love that question. And going back to your story, you said this, your book just kind of fell into place, right? And that's the, that's the whole premise of this podcast from an external viewer of your life, you got lucky, but you did a lot of little things along the way that led up to those moments of success that you probably didn't even expect at the time while you were doing that. How can you stay in that present state of mind doing those little things without getting caught up in that rat race of like, holy crap, there's so much to do. And I have my own judgments and society's judging me. How can you keep yourself in that place moving forward? Well, I, I think a superpower that helps with that is having zero left to give. Like if you don't care what society thinks, it's a lot easier. Now I do, <laughs> to, to be perfectly clear, I do not have that superpower. Um, I, uh, I've gotten very good at letting go of more and more of that. So how I keep myself in that present state of mind is I wasn't thinking about the book while I was picking the quotes or writing the blurbs for each week's broadcast. I mean, for four years, I focused on what is it that I'm, what's the, the quote that I'm pulling and what do I think about it? And then the conversation during the live broadcast came from whatever was popping up in the moment and whatever comments people were sharing during the broadcast. So I stayed present in the moment and was able to respond from there. If I was doing it in terms of, great, how is this quote going to go into a then I'm trying to look at the present moment through a lens that's a year away and looking backwards with no context or arc in between. It's impossible to be present in the moment when you're thinking about it that way. So you stay present to what it is you're doing right now, what's important about it, be on message and on purpose. Then you can look at how, uh, describe it this way, build your intellectual capital, write about stuff, speak about it, get on stages, have conversations create that intellectual capital. Later, you can see how it laces together as intellectual property. And for anybody who hasn't written a book yet and they want to write a book, start talking about it, start writing about it, start playing with those ideas and see how it comes together. 
then when you've got a body of work, you have something to look at and pull together. When people who sit down and say, okay, I'm gonna write 50,000 words now. So many people say, I hate, I hated writing my book. I, I, I have clients who all the time say, you know, I wanna be a thought leader. I wanna be this, I wanna be that. I said, look at the stuff you've been writing and you've been talking about. See what's already there to pull from. Let's play with what threads are there. You can always build on and, and morph and make that into something that captures what you want to say to the world. You've been saying it. It's amazing when people look at, oh my God, I've been talking about this for years. Look at all this crap I have to work with. Like you said, I kind of just did. Well, I also got some great people around me to help me pull it all together. Don't, don't, <laughs> it didn't literally fall into my lap. It took a lot of work of getting curating the right team to help it come together. Yeah. No point being though, you, you, you just, you, like you were saying, you stayed present in those moments. And then at the end of it, there was enough, there were enough present moments that a book came out of it. Yeah. And of course that didn't happen in a vacuum, but it's because you were talking about it and writing about it and thinking about it one quote at a time. There's a guy named Austin Kleon. Most people know him for the book, Steal Like an Artist, but he wrote another book called Show Your Work. It's like these people who fully birth a book and release it to the public and nobody's ever heard them talk about it. And they're like, where did this come from? And they wonder why it doesn't land. He says, no, 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 no. Talk about it, play with it. Put it out there in bits and pieces along the way. Build up momentum, not just for you, but for the audience. So they get a sense of what you think like and sound like and feel like. So when the book comes out, it's like, great. I can see how all this has come together. I want one. It's amazing how hard people try to make things when it can be so much more easeful. What it, what's the approach to the mindset there? Because I'm thinking for myself, we're about to go through the holidays and I got a wedding in Vegas in May. So I'm taking this from a health perspective, right? I got to get cut for the pool in Vegas. That's a big goal. And I can chunk it out or I can make this really difficult on myself. What's the mindset, the like a practical application that we can put into our life today that says, this is whenever you start going down that path of thinking about the big thing, worrying about how all this is going to tie together in the future to bring yourself back to that present moment and just take that first little 1% step. Oh, awesome. Okay. This, uh, this is chapter 33. <laughs> <laughs> By the um, book. <laughs> and no, 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 I'm going to give you the, the piece right here. I'm going to put it in the chat. So you have it in front of you. Right. But there's, there's a cascade that happens most of the time when we want to change our results. We go back and create new actions or change actions. So we get different results. And there's a reason why the diet industry is $60 billion a year. And it doesn't work for most people because you're only changing people. Most of them are only changing people's actions. So the results may change, but it's limited. When the actions revert back to their old patterns, which is inevitable, right? Because they're not changing they're not changing the behaviors that underlie the actions. They're just changing the actions. They balloon back up to where they were, right? So you changing the actions isn't deep enough. You got to change the behaviors that underlie those actions. And to really make that happen, you got to play with shifting the thoughts that underlie those behaviors and the feelings that underlie those thoughts. And underneath it all is the identity that hold, that spawns the beliefs, creates those feelings from which the thoughts emanate that create those behaviors and actions and get you new results. So you can say, okay, I'm gonna change a whole bunch of behaviors as well. Start with identity. 
So when I wanted to shift the way my body looked and felt a number of years ago, I, I did it by taking on the identity of I am an athlete. Instead of, I want to lose 10 pounds, or I want those pants to fit, or I want to be cut for the pool, whatever it is, I'm an athlete, right? So what are the beliefs that an athlete holds? And how does that drive the feelings and the thoughts going on inside them? And what, how do those behaviors surface, right? And as you play out that role, this is like you, you be it until you are it. We used to say fake it till you make it, but that makes people uncomfortable. You be it until you are it. You take on that identity and your behaviors cascade from there. And so not only do you get the results you're looking for, they tend to last. That, that seems like a big, you use that statement, I am. And it comes back to that self. Just hear yourself. How do you talk about yourself? I'm, I've caught myself lately, like I'm getting old. And I notice my behaviors, like I stand up and I go, oh, my back. My back doesn't actually hurt. I'm a little bit sore from my workout, but I'm not old. Where does, where does that stem from and how changing your identity feels like a really big task? Well, so work from this end, how about you change the language that you use to talk to and about yourself? That, that's an easy way to work from the front end. Words create worlds. So the, more, the words that you use are actually creating the lens. They're, they're, they can either be illustrative of the lens that you use, but they can create it. And I'm getting old. No, dude, you're not. <laughs> you're likely to live close to 100 years, right? I mean, unless you, know, you start doing something really stupid. But the age you are given life expectancy in on this continent, you're likely to approach hundred, if not more. My kids are likely to live to about 115 to 120, which is insane. Yeah. Think about having one, one career that whole time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pull my hair out <laughs> just to pull that all the way back. One career for 80 years. No, I'd lose my mind. So the language that we use to talk to ourselves is often really ugly. Like if anybody talked to my wife the way I talked to myself, oh my God, I'd be at their throat. And yet I still catch myself using language that's awful. So pay attention to the language you're using. I'm getting old. No, dude, I'm just sore from a workout. Find the gratitude for your ability to work out. Switch the lens. There, there's something that comes out of the 12 step world, which is incredibly effective for mindset work. And that is you are not responsible for your first thought. You are responsible for your second. So your first thought is, can, can be from the negative narratives in your head, old stories, you know, habituated phrasing, whatever. That first thought is an animalistic level reaction. Right? Your second thought, you have the ability to bring in reason and intention and will so that's a response. That's a conscious, actionable, that's a response, not a reaction. So you are responsible for the second thought. What do you want your second thought to be? Right. You catch yourself saying, oh, I'm getting old. <laughs> no, I'm not. What's really going on? Oh yeah, kick ass workout. That's why I'm a little sore, right? You, you can respond after that first thought and change it immediately. The, the, the important piece here, this is why, why it gets to mindfulness, is you have to be mindful of what you're thinking. Be aware of what you're thinking and make choices from intention. Because if you go through unconsciously, you're just going to go, the rat brain's going to keep going. 
can't stop your eyes from seeing or your ears from hearing or your brain from thinking. You can, you can't stop it, but you can actively channel it. You just have, just have to. Ha! Ah. <laughs> the, the, the whole game is being aware of what you're thinking about and making decisions from there. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's a, it's a simple concept, but it's certainly not easy. And I, I think that's where the, oh, <laughs> I mean, I guess that's, that's the, the challenge, right? Is how do you, how do you start to make that an easier thing? Um, that's totally me with, uh, with mornings. Like I've, I am so bad with mornings, right? And I, it's, I've, I've decided in my head that I'm not a morning person and I, I've proven myself right, you know, a bunch of times. Well, and and the language you're using is making it a perpetual truth, right? Because I say, up until now, I haven't been a morning person. Then your brain has room for a switch. But if you, as long as you hold, I am not a morning person, or I suck at mornings, or mornings are terrible, you're using a, a locked, closed language that has no room for shifting it. So the language that you're using is making it an ongoing pattern not just reporting on a historical pattern. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's exactly what I'm getting at is I, I find myself saying that every time I try to get up early, oh, I'm just, I'm not a morning person, you know, and it, it's, that's that's really good insight is switch it. Like, what, what if I was? What if I was a morning person, you know? Humans like motivation. You know, in this regard, we're an animal. When you can attach a motivation to a desired outcome, you're more likely to achieve that outcome. So if there's a motivation for you to get out of bed, to you taking a you know crack of dawn flight to go somewhere spectacular, you're going to get up, morning person or not, you're going to get up. You've got a motivation. So attach a motivation to it, and you're more articulated. You're more likely for it to actually happen. Yeah, that that alarm always proves me right. <laughs> <laughs> Until you decide otherwise. That, that, that's the piece. And this is a fun one that, that the people, you know, listening to podcasts aren't going to get to see, but you will. <laughs> so I'll narrate, right? Holding a black pen and a blue pen. If I choose between the two pens, I choose the blue pen, I put the black one down. I have it for later. If I decide on the blue pen, I throw away, I, I cut away the other choice. So the Latin root for the word decide is decere. It means to cut. Making a decision cuts off the other options, cuts them away. And you're leaving yourself with that, the one you decided on. And I think too often we make choices when we could be better served by making decisions. Choosing to get up in the morning is different than deciding I'm getting up in the morning. You decide, it happens. And when you hold that distinction, you can really, you can see how those levers work differently makes a big difference on changing behaviors. It's a very small distinction with words, but very big with actions. Yep. It's a small It's the smallest distinctions that make the biggest change. We have a huge problem in our culture of decision-making. You see it with a group of friends that just want to go get dinner. What do you want tonight? Oh, I don't know. You choose. Oh, right. Decisions. People have a hard time committing to that, that severing of other options. Why do you think that is? They're just out of practice. We, we have a culture of the last three generations of parents who tried to make things so easy for their kids that they didn't have to make hard choices or decisions. There's a professor at Stanford, I forgot her name, she calls, she calls them uh, snowplow parents. She literally had graduate students whose parents would call up and bitch if the kid got a B. 
we have, we have, we have generations of parents that are trying to make it easier for their kids. She tells a story about a boss getting called when the person got chided for a presentation. And a mom called the boss and said, what the f I was like, are you kidding me? And, and parents that are trying to, with all good intention of wanting things to be easier or better and have better outcomes for the kids than they had, road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Then we, we're not creating adults, we're creating children who don't know how to make decisions. Hey, before we're running low on time here, but I do want to talk about dtkquiz.com. What do we, what do we got going on here? I, um, you know, I keep creating things that I wish I had when I started <laughs> and DTK quiz is, it's a way to figure out where you are in your career or, or business art, whether you're an entrepreneur or a leader and look at how well you're doing it, living, loving, and leading at your best. And it's looking at different areas of your life and giving you ways to rate where you are on a continuum and get a feel for where the opportunities are for shift and growth. So it's using very intentional language to help people have a different lens on evaluating their world. It's not about how do I make more money? It's what's important for me to be doing with the money so that I know why I'm making it. And how am I doing against that goal set? So it's a different way of looking at a number of things in your life and seeing how it's going, giving yourself a harder metric on the softer areas. That live, love, lead from their best. Can you tell me a little bit? It's beautiful, but it seems kind of vague to me. Right. It, it, and, and so much of it is a feeling. And here's the thing. This is why coaching exists, guys, because if we want to get better at tennis, hire a tennis coach. Want to get better at playing racquetball? Get a racquetball coach. Better at running? Hire a running coach. Better at living or humaning? What do you do? Right? People are expecting to hire coaches for these activities or areas of their life, but not for their life in a big picture way. And I think it's important that we have guides and we have models for how to do these things and have people to walk with us as we figure it out. And living, loving, and leading at your best is about the more authentic you are, the more true to who you actually are, the better leader you are, the better partner and friend and lover that you are. It's learning how to live authentically. I mean, it's such a pop psychology term, I know. Um, let me equate it to the Michelangelo piece we were talking about before we, we step in behind the mic. Um, when Michelangelo was asked how he carved such exquisite figures, he said, I don't, I merely free the figure from the stone. And when he taught sculpture, he taught his students, our job is to chip away everything that isn't the figure and free it from the stone. I wish my time was better, I, I'd get it to you that way. But the, the idea is in coaching, what my job as a coach is, is to help the clients chip away everything that isn't true, isn't authentic, isn't them. And that's the place where they become better leaders, better partners, better parents. It's when they're living the should life and shitting all over themselves that they're not living authentically. And that permeates how they're leading, how they're partnering, how they're parenting. And that's where we screw things up. Those societal pressures and, and the epigenetics and all that, what we're supposed to hold on to versus if you can scrap all that, what's really there and left of who you right. are. Cool book that goes along this idea is um, called The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. I love and The Four it, Agreements. Right? Great in book. the beginning, he talks about domestication. 
Those are the agreements or the unwritten rules that we've inherited from our socialization, our education, our, our, our acculturation. And when we learn to unpack the unwritten rules that are running our life and decide which ones we want to use to, to live our life, we get to a place where we're much more authentic and much less encumbered by crap that isn't real for us. And, and it's not espousing that you go live in a shack like Ted Kaczynski out, off the grid. It's how do you in your world function in a way that works for you and your world? And that's that authentic living. It's incredibly powerful switch. All of my clients get that book immediately. Yeah, that's on my list of ones to read. I haven't read it yet, but I've heard good things from everyone who has. So I'll have to pick it up. BTK quiz.com if you're looking to live love and lead from your best that's the place to go well david i think we could go on for hours if uh time allowed for it but we do want to be respectful of your time and we appreciate you for being here and all the wisdom you've imparted uh is there anywhere else that you would like to direct people to go dtkquiz.com i know you've got dtkcoaching.com if people want to check that out You've covered it. And if you want to see the, all the episodes of Mindset Mondays, um, I've got it set up at mindsetmondays.tv. It's got four years of live broadcasts on all kinds of topics covering. Yeah, I highly recommend that everyone go check that out. I've, I watched quite a few of them. I didn't catch a lot of them live, but I did go back and watch a lot of them. I've got the book, Mindset Mondays. Highly recommend that. David, thanks again for being here. And uh, I think that... Our listeners are going to get quite a bit of value out of this. Great. I hope so. Keep up your great work. We appreciate you so much. 